Hello, welcome to this University of Brighton podcast, this time in conjunction with Brighton and Sussex Medical School or BSMS run jointly by the Universities of Brighton and Sussex. I'm Richard Newman. We will be continuing with our podcast throughout these strange and extraordinary times. We all must play our part in this coronavirus pandemic. And over the coming weeks, we'll be covering the virus itself, tips to help you cope as we adjust to a different way of living and we'll throw in some lighthearted bits too. But this week, we asked for your medical-related questions on the coronavirus. And to answer them, we're joined by Dr. Bethany Davis, Senior Lecturer in Infection at BSMS. Thank you for coming on, Bethany. We're keeping our social distance, recording this remotely. How are you finding everything at the moment? Uh, So at the moment, I feel like we're braced before the storm. So okay today, but I think it's going to be a different matter as of next week. Okay, so we have about half an hour or so to get through as many questions as possible. So if you're happy, we're just going to get started. Um, The most popular question we received is this one. If you get infected with coronavirus, will you develop immunity? Oh, so this is a really, really important question and a really interesting one um, because we're kind of relying on it, aren't we? Uh, In terms of how we as a as a world are going to escape from 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 all of this. because the idea is that we're going to reduce the number of cases by social distancing until we get a vaccine ready for us to use instead. Uh, but the vaccine relies on us uh, developing protective immunity, doesn't it? Um, unfortunately, we've got still got too many unanswered questions. So uh, I think we have to remain hopeful because uh, otherwise it's too bleak, isn't it? Um, there are some reports of reinfection, but I don't think they're particularly robust um, in that... Uh, I think it's more likely that we had false negative tests in between rather than actual reinfection, as it were. Um, but equally, the evidence for immunity is still lacking at the moment as well. Uh, so far, there's a tiny pilot study where they looked at some macaque monkeys um, uh, and they were nicely protected against reinfection when they got challenged. Um, but again, tiny numbers just in monkeys and the challenge was really close in time to the first infection. So it doesn't inform us at all about long lasting protection. But like I said, we have to be hopeful. And so I think it depends whether you're glass half full or glass half empty. And I'm definitely a glass half full person. Good stuff. Um, This one could cover a range of issues, but again, it's a very popular question. We've been asked how long quarantine will last. And I think the general question is, how long will all these measures last? The Prime Minister seems to suggest 12 weeks yesterday. It wasn't something that was repeated in that press conference by the the medical and scientific professionals with him. But uh, that's the general question, I think. How long is all this going to last for? Again, really tricky, isn't it? So, um... I think you're right. So I think we're talking about the social distancing of the whole population, aren't we? Uh, And actually the key document here that it's worth people going and and having a read of actually for yourself is the uh, Imperial College MRC report, uh, because that's really interesting. So they looked at models of the impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions to reduce COVID mortality. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that, they make it very clear that there is a really quick rebound in transmission whenever interventions are lifted. Uh, so that it squishes it nicely now, uh, whilst we do this for this, whatever it is, 12 weeks, probably. Mm -hmm. I'd be surprised if it was any less. Um, But then when you lift those, we get a rebound in infections. So it might well be that we end up with with intermittent social distancing, where they're temporarily lifted to give businesses a chance to recuperate and the economy a chance to recuperate. And then they have to get reintroduced when when surveillance shows that there's then a rise in cases again. Um, so I think probably, I think actually 
12 weeks for this current phase of suppression is probably about right. I, I don't think school is going to reopen until the autumn term, realistically. Um, but that's just my personal view. So do you think then the possibility that we could have this sort of long, long 12 week periods and that these kind of measures, every sort of gets relaxed again and then back in, I don't know, maybe this time next year, end of the year, that sort of thing could come in again. Is that a possibility? I think we have to be prepared for it. I think now is about trying to get our minds into the mindset that actually that might be a possibility and how, how do we best manage that? I think that this virus is going to be around for it, you know, if not forever, then it's going to be a real issue for at least the next 12, mm-hmm. 18 months at least. And that's until we, you know, if we get a vaccine that works as it were. So this is for the long haul. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question. Is herd immunity a myth? Ah, so um, herd immunity is a fabulous thing. Uh, it's a really important concept. And uh, it's about how we protect our vulnerable individual individuals who can't be vaccinated against things from diseases. So it's a really real thing for things like measles, say. Um, uh, And so high levels of immunity in the population mean that those who can't be immunized because they're too young or they can't have the vaccine because they're immunocompromised means that they're protected because everybody surrounding them is immune and so won't pass anything on to them. But it requires long lasting immunity like you get with measles. So you get measles once, you never catch it ever again. However, we know that we don't have that with seasonal flu, uh, so we don't ever reach the levels needed for good herd immunity in seasonal flu. Um, And so for corona, we would need either the introduction of a vaccine or for the majority of the population to contract the infection. So it's not going to be useful to us in the shorter term at all. Okay. Next question then is about, I think, if you go out to go and get food really should you be covering your face with a scarf or something similar when you when you're going out and about and, and being around other people um no <laughs> Sorry. Okay. A blunt answer. Um, i don't think it's going to protect you at all it's not going to benefit you it's not going to reduce your chances of catching sars coronavirus 2 um it might possibly if you were symptomatic reduce your chances of as many droplets going to other people but you shouldn't be going out in that scenario uh, so no Good. A question from Ellie. She's a student paramedic. Would you be at a higher risk if you suffer from exercise-induced asthma? Good question. Um, So there's some lovely guidance from Public Health England at the moment uh, as to who the higher risk groups are. Um, And equally for each specific condition, then there are some really good national patient groups. So for asthma, there's Asthma UK, which has got some useful information for individuals. Um, current guidance is that if you have a chronic condition that requires you to get the annual flu vaccination because of it, then that counts as being in a higher risk group. Um, but I think it's unlikely that, you know, exercise induced asthma, which is only triggered by exercise, that doesn't require regular use of preventative inhalers or oral asthma meds. Um, I can't see that being a, a high risk, really. OK, a couple of questions from Irene, uh, a medical student. She asks how deadly is COVID-19 and how long until a successful treatment and a vaccine could be available? Oh, how deadly is it? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I know the answer to how deadly it is. I think that what we know so far uh, is that it's really hard to estimate what case fatality rates are uh, because we don't know what the denominator is, which is you know how many people in the community are positive with mild disease that we don't know about. However, we can tell from experience so far that it is worse than seasonal flu. 
but it's not as bad as the original SARS or MERS-CoV. Uh, so we're kind of somewhere between those. Uh, the problem is that it's better at spreading than either SARS or MERS-CoV. So many more people are and will be affected. Uh, and it also seems that case fatality rates vary. So it's higher in the elderly population and the over 80s fare worse than the over 60s. And what also seems to be coming out is that case fatality rates vary depending on on the situation that you're in. So if you're somewhere where your hospital services are completely overwhelmed and you've run out of ventilators, your case fatality rate is going to be higher than if it's at a time when actually you could have a ventilator for every member of the population if you needed. Uh, so yes, it's, you know, the number of people that are going to be affected, even if the case fatality rate is low, that's still a lot of people. And, and how long, the other question was about how long re realistically could we be waiting for a vaccine and, and a more effective treatment? So vaccine at the very earliest, 18 months, I think at the very, very earliest. And that would be really rapid. Um, uh, and we need to understand more about how actually we get protective immunity. And, you know, there's lots of different arms to your immune response and which of those is the most effective against corona which gives you lasting immunity so it's understanding that a bit better in terms of treatment actually that's a little bit more promising so there's a number of agents that were already trying so ones that were trying at the moment are things you might have read about remdesivir uh, about boosted lipinavir about chloroquine whether they're successful or not is a different matter uh, and so for that we need some decent evidence and that's going to be in the form of, of randomized controlled trials uh, these are underway for remdesivir. Uh, we're going to start recruiting shortly to that, hopefully. Uh, and there's results of Kalitra trials, which are already starting to be published. Um, and actually, what we do have to stop and recognise is that's really impressive, because considering this only started really in January, uh, it's one of the key legacies of the Ebola outbreak that we have globally learned how to rapidly roll out ethical, structured randomized controlled trials in response to an outbreak. So that is something that we have improved on globally over time. The Prime Minister yesterday talked about uh, an antibody test, which would be a game changer. Can you explain why it would be? So I have to confess, I didn't listen to him. Uh, so I don't quite know the context of the, of the antibody test. So essentially an antibody test looks to see uh, whether you have being exposed to coronavirus and mounted an antibody response to that. Uh, uh, so that is then useful to tell who in the population has been exposed. Uh, so it gives you a better idea about that, you know, whether there's been that asymptomatic infection in the community and lots of people that, so we get a better idea of how much disease burden there's really been. If you can then extrapolate that and say that if there's antibodies there, they're protective, you then might be able to say, well, actually we could, then say that those people are at, the, if there's a protective antibody response, you are safer to go back to work and to be exposed to uh, ongoing infection or not. So I think that's kind of the, the two arms to it, really. Okay. I'm going to simplify the next question, but Onyedi has got in touch. He's a medical student. Um, asks if medication used for HIV, AIDS and malaria has worked well to treat the virus so far. Uh, so those are the, the agents that I mentioned just now. So the, uh, the chloroquine, which you see in the context of both antimalarials uh, and uh, as an immunosuppressant occasionally, uh, and also for uh, the boosted lipinavir. Um, so the first 
randomized control results for the boosted lipinavir, which is Kaletra, the HIV medicine, uh, was actually that uh, the 28 day mortality was unchanged, uh, which means that for an individual patient, it wasn't for any benefit. Uh, and that was with 14 days of Kaletra. Uh, one possible positive is that the treatment arm might have had shorter ICU stays, so it might be beneficial for the, for the system as a whole because it could mm -hmm. free up ventilators potentially, even if it doesn't change outcome for an individual. But uh, we don't have anywhere near enough Kaletra to be able to treat our patients beyond the first few. Uh, and additionally, there's some really significant uh, drug interactions that have to be considered as well. Um, chloroquine, really limited evidence for so far. So that's probably going to be taking, being used in the randomized control trials that are being set up. All our RCTs uh, nationwide have to be signed off by the CMO to make sure that we've got joined up thinking. And I know that locally, we're not going to use any experimental medicines outside of um, an RCT uh, setting to make sure that our patients are, are that it's all done safely. Okay. Uh, Gemma is a student. Uh, she asks what the evidence is against using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. This has been around quite a bit. Should we be avoiding those? Ah, so yes, this was making the WhatsApp groups at school go absolutely mental the other day. <laughs> so... Uh, the, there is no, the current position is there is no strong evidence that ibuprofen can make COVID-19 worse. So the, the World Health Organization, very clearly at the moment, are not recommending that non-steroidals be avoided when they're clinically indicated. Um, there were some concerns coming, I think, from data out of France, but I know that Public Health England are going to make their own assess assessment of that data. And the NHS is taking a slightly more cautious approach to it's taking a pragmatic approach saying use paracetamol first line if you can uh, and equally don't stop take, not taking non-steroidals if you're already taking them for another condition but equally we're always really cautious anywhere about non-steroidals in our sick inpatients because they can when you're that much more poorly they are a risk for GI bleeds and they can be a problem with acute kidney injury so in that kind of setting we do exercise a little bit of caution anyway but for people at home having a dose or two of non-steroidals not a problem at the moment. Okay. Anna asks, is it true that the virus lives mm -hmm. on surfaces for nine days? Yeah. So actually that nine days came out of a um, journal of hospital infection review of about 22 papers. And actually interesting, they didn't actually look at this particular virus, I don't think. They looked at the, set, the whole family. So looking at SARS-1, MERS-CoV and the endemic human coronaviruses. But we kind of imagine that they're all pretty much of a muchness, really. Um, and that's just for up to nine days. And that then uh, within using, aren't we? So it's the rationale behind the recommendation for minimizing the amount of time you spend in shared spaces if you're trying to self-isolate with vulnerable people. Uh, and so if you've got someone vulnerable at home, then they get to use the kitchen first, they get to use the bathroom first. Uh, and once you've used it, then you make sure everything's really frequently cleaned as well. And equally kind of making sure that high touch areas such as doorknobs and light switches and stuff that you clean those on a regular basis too. Um, what's really reassuring actually though is that there is evidence that cleaning works. So there was a paper looking at um, really high, con highly contaminated rooms. So isolation rooms where patients who were symptomatic with COVID-19 uh, and they did environmental screening beforehand which showed lots of contamination with the virus uh, but the air samples were negative and that the samples they took after cleaning were negative. So it suggested that our current decontamination measures are effective and are sufficient. Okay. Do you think people should be more careful with their phones 
because that's something that you pick up, put down a lot. You may end up going into shops and picking up something again and just getting out your phone whilst you're in a queue. Yeah, always. This is, the sort of, this is the sort of thing that we keep on. It's always the transmitting from place to place, isn't it? Yes. So I would, uh, you know, I think I think you're right. I think phones are high touch surfaces and as such, we should be cleaning them regularly as well. But then equally, it's also then about trying not to touch your face. So it's then because if it's just touching your phone and you're not touching any other part of you, then it's not going to transmit. But if you touch your phone and then touch your eyes or touch your mouth or touch a mucous membrane, it is then a risk. And what's interesting, actually, it's really hard to do a negative, isn't it? So it's really hard to say, don't touch your face, because it just makes you want to instantly. Mm. <laughs> uh, so what the yeah. behavioural scientists have said is they've said it's easier to do a positive. So if you say, keep your hands below shoulder height, that is easier to achieve than don't touch your face. It's a good tip. Yeah, It's a good tip. You're right. I think that's what everyone's starting to get a little bit more. They're, they're struggling with quite a lot is not touching your face when you're told not to do it. Yes, exactly. um, Harry is a psychology student. He asks, how much faster will all this be resolved if people just listen and stop going to clubs, bars and restaurants? So I don't think it's going to resolve any quicker. Uh, and that's not the aim of, of reducing those highly social activities. Um the aim of reducing the activities is that fewer people will die along the way uh, because it will spread out the need for ventilators and intensive care support uh, and, you know, oxygenation support over time, allowing more people to be supported and to survive. OK. Uh, Mete, a medical student, asks if the media is making too much of all of this. Nope. Don't think so. Um, I, mean, I suppose it depends on who you, who you read and where you go for your <laughs> go for your news reports. <laughs> Uh, but this is a really big deal and I think that we I don't think any of us really yet understands what it's going to be Um, and actually I think that is this is life-changing for all of us Um, and I think we're all underprepared for what's about to hit us. Okay this one is anonymous does the virus spread generally in the air? Okay so in normal interactions uh, sorry that's the dog Um, with (laughs) infected individuals in the community, then it spreads by large droplets. So even when they're sneezing, even when they're coughing, these will fall out of the air and onto surfaces within six foot of the infected individual. Uh, So that's why that's the kind of the the distance you need to keep from people. And this is different to things like measles and chickenpox where the whole room becomes infected because there's aerosols. And so that just face-to-face talking or being in the same lecture hall counts. This is, you know, that's not the case with SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-2 only becomes aerosolized when we do specific aerosol generating procedures on a patient, such as intubating them, so sticking that tube down their throat or giving them non-invasive ventilation. So even on my ward in the hospital at the moment, infectious diseases ward, we are not doing any aerosol generating procedures on patients. So it's just droplets. So, um, so yeah, that's hence the six foot. Okay, so I guess this kind of leads into the next question as well. Stuart is an engineering student. He asked if it's still safe to go cycling. I guess this applies to lots of exercise, really, with gyms closed or closing. Um, Getting exercise really is reduced outside to cycling, running, walking. Yeah, so I think it's a brilliant idea. So absolutely to cycling uh, because you're out in fresh air. You can stay six foot away from people uh, uh, and you can do as much as you want. So absolutely just make sure you wear your cycle helmet and some bright clothing uh, and much safer than taking public transport. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, it's little chances there that they're running or cycling on your own would mean you pick up something from somewhere else if you're in a, if you're just making sure you're keeping your distances. Yeah, keep your distances and don't touch things. Yeah, I did notice out on a run this morning when you're just running and obviously your breathing's a little bit heavier. You're trying to keep away from other people, but people are definitely trying to keep away from, <laughs> keep away from you as well. There's like those uh, magnet races where they normal. repel each other, isn't it? You know, two magnets and they push each other in opposite like directions. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is considered to be a high temperature? Because a lot of people may not have a thermometer in their in their home. Yeah, and so what's interesting is over time. So I've been I've been reading the guidance an awful lot on a regular basis. So you can see how it evolves. The original PHE guidance had a temperature in it, the original NHS guidance, uh, but actually they've taken that out now. So they've taken the need to take your temperature out of the guidance because, as you say, many households don't have a thermometer. Um, but if you do have one, then you know our normal practice in infection uh, mm-hmm. and equally the the hospital early warning score that we use for adults in hospital would call a temperature anything above 38. Okay. Are smokers more at risk or or suffer worse symptoms potentially? Uh, So I don't think that's supported by the data yet indirectly, as it were. Uh, However, smokers with end organ damage, such as COPD or ischemic heart disease or something like that, then yes. Uh, But smoking on its own per se at the moment doesn't seem to be. Okay. I think that's just about all we have time for today bethany so thanks so much for taking time to do this today would you like to finish on anything i guess maybe follow the latest nhs guidance would be the best the best thing to do. exactly and so the other thing i would say is that you know i think that i think our chief medical officer and our chief scientific officer are incredibly intelligent and measured people so i've worked directly for chris witty uh, and i really admire him uh and also I know that Susan Hopkins, who's, you know, head of our PHE response, again, is an incredible woman. So we've got some really great people at the top and that is making me feel really reassured. Plus they're being really responsive as concerns come. So we have, you know, uh, an infection kind of forum that feeds into them as well. And they are listening to that and they're responding. Uh, so, you know, we're in good hands from that perspective. Yes, we're seeing a lot of Chris Whitty, a very calm and reassuring presence. Um, So keep an eye on all of the university social media channels for latest updates from all institutions. Your emails too. familiarise yourself with the latest NHS advice. If you have a persistent cough or a high temperature, you must self-isolate for seven days. And if living with others, 14 days for the whole household. Wash your hands, stay well. We'll be back next week with another podcast. You can subscribe to this via most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search University of Brighton. Thanks for listening.